Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men in central Indiana pursuing meaningful friendships, faith, and character. Today's talk is from our founder, Bill Moore, on Philippians chapter 1. Stick around at the end for some additional thoughts, and we hope you're inspired by the ideas. Well, guys, at age 57, I've passed through a lot of stages of life already. And I found at every stage, there's men who always had Jesus right in the middle of every single thing they did. And then there's guys that do Jesus events. They go to things, they experience Jesus, and then they just kind of go on back and do their thing again, right? So, and I've been both of those guys, quite frankly. I can move in and out of space pretty quickly. There was a guy I met uh, some years back. His name was Andy Horner. He was in his mid-60s. Uh, in 1985, it had completed a successful business career. But instead of retiring at that point in time, he had this goal. He had this passion burning inside of him. He saw these missionaries working so hard to raise money. They'd be out in the field and they'd come back and they'd need money and they have to work super hard to raise money. And it was so frustrating for him to have to come back to America and run around and beg for money. And it frustrated Andy. And he's like, that's just wrong. We need our missionaries saving souls and reaching people's lives. Andy started a company called Premier Jewelry in 1985 when he's 60 plus years old and ready to retire and go off and fish. He started a new company. Today, there's thousands of employees all over the world doing over $700 million in sales, (laughs) selling jewelry, and the people doing it are the missionaries, wives, and spouses, and they're raising their own income so they don't have to come back and raise money in the United States. It's been massively successful, and so many missionaries are doing what they've been called to do because Andy did what he was called to do. He used his gifts in the marketplace and his business skills to do something brought incredible glory and honor to God. It was right on point, and he stayed in the play, right? He didn't go retire. He didn't hang up his hat. He stayed in the play. I just love that story. Tonight's study of Paul's letter reveals his desire to make every part of his life centered on Jesus Christ. I mean, if you want to start making the shift from going to events to making them at the center of your life, I've pulled six principles out tonight. There's dozens of them in this, in this first chapter, dozens. I pulled six out to help us. We often don't do anything, though. This is the problem we have, isn't it, guys? We don't do anything after we've learned something because these new principles don't stick with us, do they? <laughs> I know they don't for me. I got notes. I got every sermon I've ever listened to here on my phone. You know how many times I've gone back and reviewed them? Not many. So I don't remember a lot of this stuff. And so what we've done, we've done a few things to help you remember what you're learning. Number one, we've given you a lesson to take home and to work on. So this is the first form of learning. The number two is you come here and you study it together and you talk it through. So now you've experienced it a second time. Number three, I'm gonna come through and give you some more ideas to help round out that. So you've got three different learning styles to do it. And number four, I'm gonna leave you with some plays tonight to run. Simple, tactical plays you can pick one to do this week. Six to choose from, one to take with you. Right? That would be my challenge to you. Take one. Run the play this week. Teach whatever you learn to somebody else. One of the highest levels of retention comes from when you teach something. So I'm selfishly teaching a lot because I love to retain what I learned from the Bible. (laughs) 
It's a high level retention. So if you learn something tonight and you want to practice it, go home and find one person to say, I learned this really cool concept. Just one thing. Like, give me two minutes. I want to tell you what it is. And then teach it to that person. If you can't teach it to somebody in two minutes or less, you probably don't understand it very well, right? So this is what we want you to do. This is how we want it to run tonight, guys. So, and I really want to hear your stories as you start to experience what you're doing and going through. So you can email me at Bill at heartofaman.org, bill at heartofaman.org. Email me stuff, right? Hey, I'm experiencing this, I'm doing that, I'm working on this, I got this going on. Or if you wanna get together with me, I do a lot of one-on-one time with guys. I mean, I got three guys this week I'm meeting with. If you wanna just connect with me one-on-one, just send me an email and I'll try to find a spot in my calendar and meet with you, okay? So I'd love to do that just to start connecting in that way. Our goal, guys, is to help men move from experiencing Jesus in the periphery of their life to moving them right to the center just like Paul does in this study tonight, man. He moves him to the center, doesn't he? Like, he's not on the periphery. That guy is all in. So here we go. This is going to go wicked fast, right? I got 26 minutes to go six units. I'm going to blow through this, so hang with me, all right? First thing we see, verse 1, Paul and Timothy call themselves servants of Jesus. Servants. The servant, this word servant is translated from the Greek word doulos, doulos, which means slave, and yes, it's used 150 times in the New Testament, 150 times, the word slave. Translators have put the word servant into that spot because of all the negative connotation that's come through the ages, and they wanted to soften the word. The word is slave. That's what it means. That's what he's saying. And exactly what you think it is is what he's trying to say. These slaves at that time were owned by somebody else. In fact, so much so, one-third to one-half of the Roman culture and those Roman communities were slaves. There were that many slaves at that time in those Roman cities. So these people, when they got this letter and he put the word slave in there and he said, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, they knew exactly what he meant. Servants get paid, they have rights, they have their own home, they have families, they have control of their lives. Slaves don't get paid. They lived with their owners at that time. They had no plans of their own, they had no control of their life. They were being told what to do at all times. They were slaves. And that's what Paul was talking about. And he was saying, I am a slave of Jesus, not a volunteer servant. That's not who I am. And this is the cool part. Those who follow Jesus are slaves bought by his death. Highest possible price you could pay. You couldn't pay at a higher price for a slave. You guys, you're the most expensive people God could buy. And he gave up his son's life for you. And so he's asking you to be a slave just like Paul was. I think that's powerful. But Paul also knew this. Being a slave of Jesus yields incredible rewards. He didn't worry about food, clothing, housing, recognition, a family. Jesus provided all of those. He provided every one of those. He didn't have to worry about that. That was the best part about being a slave. And you know what else he got? He got a bonus. Guaranteed eternal life in a resurrected body. That's what we get to, you guys. We don't have to worry about any of that stuff, just like he didn't, and we get a resurrected body in an eternal heaven with Jesus Christ. That's a pretty nice deal, being a slave of Jesus Christ. I think it is. Jesus calls us to give up our plans and live as slaves obedient to his plan, you guys. That's what he calls us to. You know, there's a guy here at our church. His name's Dave Palmer. He's an elder, and uh, he's been a member here. I got to know him right when I got to church. I've been a member here six years. But about seven years ago, David led a group of men to create a company called Purposeful Design. And they built the company down at Brookside on the east side of town, right around the 16th Street area. This company provides jobs, woodworking jobs. They manufacture furniture. 
And they provide jobs for men that need second chances, guys that are coming out of rough situations that have failed in their first attempt and need another go at life. That's who they hire, you guys. They use this platform to train these men in their faith, their life skills, and their work skills. Dave gave up a very successful marketing company that he owned. Very successful, he's doing quite well. A lot of his customers are actually my customers. We had a lot in common when we first met. The only difference between Dave and me was Dave gave up the German car and he gave up his career. And he walked away from all that because he said, I feel God calling me to something higher, Bill. And he did. He moved down to Brookside, moved his family down there. He got a house that was a heck of a lot smaller, drives a pickup truck, gave up the German car, gave up the great lifestyle. And if you look at Dave right now, he's leading these men and building beautiful furniture. Their sales went from zero to almost $2 million this year. They're doing fantastic, building beautiful furniture and creating incredible men down there. Just awesome what he's doing. Dave knew he would never be a pastor. He knew he wasn't going to be a missionary. He wasn't in that. He knew that's not what called him to. He knew how to do business. That's what he knew. And a lot like Andy Horner, he said, I'm just going to go where God calls me, man. I'm just going to go do what he does, and he's going to use the skills he gave me, and he's going to put them there for God's glory. I think that is so powerful. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Luke 9, 23. What in your life this week will you give to Jesus and allow him to have full control? That's the tough question, isn't it? It's like, man, I'm a dad. I'm a, I'm a, I got to go to work. I got to take care of stuff. I just got so much going on. It's so hard to give him control. I can't just sell out and go a missionary. You can't. God's not wanting you to do that. He didn't ask you to do that. He asked you to be all in right where you are right now. And you can do that. So I want to give you a small play to run. First, teach the concept to somebody, right? I'm going to say that every time, all right? Teach the concept to somebody. Second, give God control over something this week. Give him control every day. What is it going to give you control? You're going to practice, right? This is what John Wooden did when John Wooden was one of the best basketball coaches in the world. And you know what he did? He taught his guys how to develop their character through drills, not just basketball drills, but life drills. And so I'm going to give you a drill here. Give something up this week, one hour, sometime, every single night. Maybe it's your TV time. And just say, God, how do you want to use me? One hour. I'm going to run this place seven days a week, one hour. I'm going to give something up because I'm going to practice giving control to God. I'm just going to practice giving him control. And don't look at it as a sacrifice. Look at it as practice. This is a play I'm going to run. You can do that. Give up one hour. Go give him something and then ask him what he wants you to do. What are you going to do? I don't know what you're going to do. That's up to him. Go pray. Go come to church and serve, right? Go find a friend in the neighborhood and help him out. Go jump into a ministry. I don't know what you're going to do. Maybe something crazy like pray with your wife. Oh, my gosh. Or go do some Bible study, right? Work on your Bible study a little longer than you did today. But do something for Jesus Christ for an hour this week. One play, one hour, one day, all right? That's one. Number two. In verse eight, Paul writes this. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. Mm. Paul loves these people, you guys. He spent years working with them to build this church. He loves these people. I want to tell you, men working for Jesus often find themselves with other men, and they do things that really require them to build a community with other guys, and they get close to those guys. For example, I've ever met some guys working for Habitat for Humanity, and they get in these teams. They get close. You got, there's guys that go on these relief missions. I know some guys that do all kinds of stuff when there's hurricanes and tornadoes, and they go in and help people, and I'll tell you what, those guys get close like really tight brothers. You know, you see guys in prison ministries. I've been on some prison ministry teams. And boy, you want to talk about getting close with some guys and building some deep friendships, serving in the poor guys in the military. If you're thinking, man, I don't have friends. 
I'm not close to, maybe you haven't gotten into some work with some other guys that's meaningful. Maybe you've just been working around the periphery, but this is a place, this is a place where you can step in and start really building deep friendships by doing deep, meaningful work. It does cause deep, meaningful friendships. I'm telling you, it does, guys. And young guys, hear me now. Young guys, you can't pop in and pop out. When you're flaky and you bug in and you bug out, you pop into the ministry and pop out because it's just not thrilling enough for you, you're not getting a buzz from it or it's not visually stimulating or you can't post enough pictures on Facebook, that's not how deep friendships are built. I just wanna be clear, they don't come that way. They come from time. You serve and it takes time and time and time and you gotta work together over and over, hour after hour. That's how friendships are built. They take time and you gotta give of yourself to do that, right? So don't flake out, don't be in and out quick, right? There's a young guy, Isaac here is one of our leaders. And on our way up today, I kept saying to Isaac, man, I really appreciate you being a leader. Isaac, you're a young guy, I really appreciate that. And Isaac said to me, he said, hey, I committed. I'm all in, I'll be here from the beginning to the end. You know how much that meant to me, Isaac? Honestly, it really felt good to me. Because I don't hear that from young guys a lot. A lot of times they just come and go and they flake out on me and I'm like, what's up with that, man? Like, I don't get that. So thank you, Isaac, I'm really proud of you. I got a really dear friend. He's probably one of the few I have, honestly. I don't have a lot of close friends, but I got a couple. And uh, Scotty is that guy. He's sitting right over there. Scotty, you want to stand up? So he's got come over here, come here, just so I can hug you real quick. All right, come on, come on. <laughs> so, so Scotty, Scotty and I, eight years in BSF. My son Taylor was a, in, in junior high. Scotty was his teacher. Scotty was single. Scotty joined my family in essence. We just adopted him like a son and he spent years, and we just did BSF for years together. We'd lead the classes together every Saturday morning, eight years, 32 weeks a year. We just got close. After that, we went to Africa for 10 years. We served in Africa together, trying to start companies together over and over again, man. And boy, did we get to know each other. (laughs) Scotty walking around the, the hotel with his towel wrapped around him and a toothbrush in his mouth and I'm in there going could you just put something on dude like I don't think that's cool man I don't, I don't like you brushing your teeth can't you brush in the bathroom and we we got to know each other like I mean we really got close and we had some rough times together we had a lot of bad stuff happen to us we had a lot of good stuff happen to us we've been around a lot of people all over the world and we met brothers in Christ in Africa we still got a dear friend named Francis that we he's like a brother to us he's a Ugandan his daughter goes to school here because we know him we love Francis because we've been in the battle together. Scott and I have been in the battle together. He's like a brother to me, man. I love this guy. He loves me and I know it. It's not, this is not flaky stuff. This isn't Facebook Scotty, right? This is Bill and Scotty. You won't see pictures of us on Facebook. We don't do that. It's just me and him. We love each other, man. We're together. We're as one. So I actually did Scotty's wedding for him. That's how much we love each other, right? I mean, here, like right here, right there. <laughs> yeah. So you guys, what can you do this week to serve some other men so you can get close to them? Here's what I'd ask you to do. Identify one person to teach this idea to. Starting to get that, all right? Find an organization. Find an organization that you think you could jump into. Your church has stuff going on with men. There's some really powerful stuff going on, guys, all over. Just start digging. It's all over the internet. There's guys serving orphanages. There's guys serving in disaster relief. There's guys serving all over the place and really powerful stuff that you could jump into. Pick something, write something down. This is a play. Google and search stuff and put a list together and say, God, where should I go do something? 
and then jump into something. Jump in. Don't stay on the periphery because you're never going to make any deep friends watching from the sidelines. The deep friends are made on the field. That's where the friendships are birthed. Play number three, verses 9 through 11. Paul tells men they need to have their love grow in knowledge and depth of insight. I think one of the guys in our group, uh, one of the groups I visited said, I could talk about this for two hours. I really like to hear that. (laughs) Jeremiah. Jeremiah was like, I got two hours on that one. You don't want to hear me talk. So he just held back. I would have liked to heard that. This one for me is close. Like this, I passed over the scripture. And last week I said that, you know, there's some throwaway verses sometimes. And there's no throwaway verses. Everybody hear me now? There's no throwaway verses, all right? There's times when you treat them that way, though. And you know I'm telling you the truth. You just scoot right by them and you don't see anything. Well, this one I jumped by and I picked up something. I went back to it and God said, no, you know this well. Guys, here's the nut of it. As men, our hearts are closed. They are closed. We shut down. What he's talking about here is he says, I want you to have this knowledge to grow in love. I want your love to grow. What the heck is he talking about? He's talking about this stuff in your heart. Guys don't play well in the emotional weight room. We're foreigners there, guys. We get in there and we're awkward. We don't even know the words they use in that weight room. I've got lists on my phone of emotional words so guys can even know what the words of emotions are. I use them all the time. How do you feel? Good. That's not an emotion. It's not. So I got the list, guys. There's three categories of good and three categories of bad emotions, right? And you got to learn the language. You got to learn how to play in that emotional weight room. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, guys, if you want to make a change, you want to have a dramatic impact in your life, you have to start figuring out what's going on with your stinking heart because there's stuff going on there you don't understand and it's holding you back from me. This is what God's talking about. He's saying, your relationship with your friends is closed and because it's closed, you can't touch me. You can't reach me. I've watched it, guys. I work with a group of guys on Saturday. I work with another group of guys on Thursday. We do heart groups together. And we get in and we sit in there for hours. I got a CEO group that comes once a month. That's all we do is work on our hearts. And we use all these tools to dig and get in there and get ourselves open because we are stuck and we can't communicate our heart. And he's saying, when you can't do that, your love for me is being hindered and it's being hindered severely. If you say, I can't feel the love of Jesus, neither could I. I was hurt as a little boy. And I built a wall around me as well as I built my food processing plants. It was extremely well engineered. And you know what? It takes a lot of work to unwrap that wall I built around my heart. But I've had guys helping me. I went to the Townsend Leadership Program. I've worked with Dr. Townsend. I've worked with groups of men. And they've started to take the bricks off from around my heart. And I can start to feel again. My emotional relationship with my wife's dramatically different, you guys. My relationship with my son's different. I'm a different guy. I feel the love of God. I couldn't feel the love of God eight years ago. I couldn't feel it. It goes this way and this way at the same time. You touch your heart of a guy, you touch the heart of God. I can't explain it, but it works both directions at the same time. Guys, we got to get in the emotional weight room. You got to. This is a big deal. So teach the concept to somebody. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep water. They're down there. That's what's in his heart. That's where we came up with heart of a man is this scripture. The purposes of a man's heart is deep water. A wise man draws it out. 
That's what Paul's talking about. He's like, your, your well of, of heart is deep and it's rich and it's full, but you're not getting access to it and you have not let anybody else in there and you are being hindered severely in your ability to relate to others and to relate to me. I need you in that space. You gotta work on this, guys. This is a big deal. Here's the drill. I hope everybody picks this one tonight. This is the one I'm most fond of. Pick one person this week to listen to carefully for feelings. Ask how they're feeling, repeat it back, and let them know you heard their feelings. 90% of you, maybe more, won't be able to do it. 90% of you won't be able to do this. You don't even know the words to ask. How are you feeling? Good. You're done. Thanks. So you're good. Yeah, good. Okay. See you later. That's how most of you will go. I'm telling you good's not an emotion. Derek, how you doing? Good. Tell me more. Well, it was a rough week. Why was it rough, Derek? Well, um... Uh, one of my people I had to fire at one of my companies. What was that like, Derek? It really stunk. I, I, I hated that. How do you feel about that? Actually, pretty bad about myself. Really, tell me more. So you see how the path goes? Most of us don't do that. We don't do that at all. We just try to fix the guy. All we want to do is fix, 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 fix. What's wrong? Let me fix it. Let me fix it. I'm a mechanic. I'm the, I'm the, I can fix anything. Guys, that doesn't help anybody. That's of no value. This week, pick one person, one day, one time, and sit with them and look them in the eyes and say, hey, how are you feeling right now? And listen for their emotions and say, tell me more. Can you tell me more? Say more about that. I'd like to know more about that. And when you hear something that sounds like, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm sad, I'm discouraged, say, so what you're telling me is you're really hurting right now. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I'm hurting. Man, I feel that from what you're saying. I really feel that. I'm hearing what you're saying. Stop. No more. Say nothing else. Don't fix them. Stay with them in the moment. Put your arm around them and just stay in it with them and say, hey, thanks for sharing it with us. I sure appreciate it. Love being your friend, man. And just walk away from that. You're done. You go back a week from now and ask them how they're doing. I guarantee you they're going to say that was probably the most meaningful interchange I've ever had with you in my life. Thank you. I'm telling you. And for you guys that are married, You'll blow your wife's mind. <laughs> She's going to be like, you always fix stuff. What's going on here? I feel the fixing statement coming. You're like, nope, I'm not doing that. I just want you to know I love you and I'm listening to you. I'm hearing you. Am I hearing you? Did I catch it right? She's going to be blown away. I'm telling you she will. This is the secret to the emotional weight room, guys. Listen, repeat it back. Run that play. Number four. In verses 12 through 14, Paul's rejoicing because even though he is in prison, the gospel's going out, man. Jesus told him he was God's chosen instrument to bring the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and their kings. That's what he told him. Paul, your job, gospel, Gentiles, and the kings of the Gentiles. That's what you're going to do. Wow. Holy cow. He was also told he was going to suffer a lot for the name of Jesus. Kind of deserved it. So he was persecuting a lot of Christians. Just saying. All right. He's chained to guards, Roman guards, 24-7. What does Paul do? Shares the gospel incessantly. These guys are probably like, please unhook me. Please get this guy off me. I have heard more than I care to hear. He just keeps talking about this guy, Jesus. That's what he did. Never stopped. The Roman praetorian guard and all of Caesar's staff knew who Jesus Christ was. Paul's goal was to get to Rome and share Jesus Christ with Caesar. He did it. Accomplished it. Got there in chains, though. He was handcuffed, right? Wow. That is impressive. 
His bold sharing empowered all those followers that are around him too. They watched Paul, they saw what he's doing, they're like, I can do that, I can do that, I can be that bold, that's good stuff. Most of us are hunting for happiness and comfort, aren't we guys? Isn't that what we're searching for? I know I do, happiness and comfort, man. I like on a rabid dog hunting for those things. But we rarely look to share Jesus and see every opportunity as ordained by God for that purpose. Rarely do we do that. Most of us just don't see those opportunities if we're awkward bringing it up. We do. Okay, so let me give you an example. We have customers to come to our plants. We process for people. So we got guys from Nestle. They'll come in. They'll spend two days there. They audit your plant. They watch you run. Just, they just hang out for hours and hours and hours. And so as one of the sales guys, I'm often called to come in and sit with these guys. It's brutal because after about an hour, you're done, right? Like you've covered all the business stuff and you've got like eight more to go that day. And you're like, oh my gosh, what are we going to talk about? So, and so you've got to entertain these guys. I don't entertain anybody. I go to this. I start asking about their families one person at a time. Tell me about your family. Tell me more. How old are they? Where do they live? What are they? You know, I just go down that road. And then I say, well, where do you go to church? And they, well, well, what was that? Yeah, where do you go to church? Oh, some guys are like, ah, I don't go to church. Oh, that's cool. And then I say, tell me about stuff that's going on in your life that we could pray for you. Because we pray here, man. Like, that's what we do at Packmore. And we just love praying for people. So what's going on in your life that we could pray for you on? And I'm telling you, I've never had a person, not a one, look at me and say, you know what, that's just a little too much love, right? Like, we don't do that in our family or at our company. No, we're Nestle, we don't do that. They never say that, never. And people would always say, you can't say that with Nestle. And you're like, yeah, you can. Like, yes, you can. There's no rule that says you can't. The only rule is you. You somehow think we can't. That's not true, we can, so we do. And you know what they do? They tell you. They're like, yeah, my family's a mess right now. My kid's doing drugs. And all of a sudden, you're in these conversations. You're like, that may have been a little more than I wanted. So, but they tell you. They talk to you. They share these things deeply with you guys. They get there quickly. And the next thing you know, you're praying for somebody from Nestle about something going on in their life. And you're like, wow. And all of my sales guys, as they get to come to the company and they're new, they just sit there and watch me like, how do you do that? Like, what are you doing? I'm like, what else should we be doing? We're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. He put me here with this guy from Nestle who's never gonna hear the name of Jesus unless I say it. I got a chance, man. Of course I'm gonna say it. And you know the benefit of that whole thing is? They come back and say, I trust that guy. I trust that guy. You know what the food business is all about? Trust. We've got some of the biggest brands. You know, you eat a Snickers bar, most of it was made in one of my plants. You want that full of goo? You want that full of contaminated stuff? They gotta trust you that you're making good stuff. They trust you. When you talk about Jesus, people trust you, you guys. So you gotta ask yourself, what am I gonna do this week to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? How do I make this connection? And it's hard, I know it's hard. I know it's difficult, but you gotta work on it. So you gotta go in and try to meet somebody that you can talk to this week and ask them if you can pray for them. That's all you gotta do. Just one person, one person. You don't have to do it every day, but one person that you don't know and ask him if you can pray for him. I did this with Joachim Noah in the airport at Chicago O'Hare. I had no idea, you know, I don't know Joachim, but I knew he played for the Bulls, and he's standing there with a broken toe, and so I walked up on one of my sales guys, I'm like, Joachim, broken toe, and he's like, yeah, it's really hurting me, and I said, prayer? He goes, what do you want? I said, nothing, man. I don't know, you're gonna ask for an autograph, I'm just gonna pray for you, because you look like you're in a bad day. He's like, sure. Huddled up with Joachim Noah, I got about to his waist, Prayed over him, said, you good? He's like, yeah. You don't want anything? He said, no, that's it. Hope you're too. I'll see you later, dude. That was it. That was it. You can do that. 
One guy. Number five, in verses 15 through 18, Paul's rejoicing because even his enemies preach out of the selfish ambition of spreading the gospel. These people are preaching against Paul. They're trying to take his peeps, right? They're trying to get in. They're trying to diss him, trying to make him look bad. He's feeling bad because he's looking, but he knows the gospel's being shared. Here's the main point in this. I'm going to go through this quick because I want to get this last video. I got a two-minute video I really want you to see. Every one of us, every one of us, you guys, is going to do things that's going to distract from the gospel. There's always going to be people that look at you and say, that guy's a Christian? I saw him do, and you fill in the blank. I saw him say, you fill in the blank. I'm telling you, if you haven't had that happen yet, it's going to happen. People all around, all of us do it to everybody. We always judge other Christians, always, constantly, and you're your worst enemy. I'm my worst enemy. I took myself out of the game twice. One time, I was, when I was teaching Bible study fellowship, I really felt like I wanted recognition, and I really felt bad about myself, so I stopped teaching. Another time I took myself out of the game was when I heard somebody say that I heard you say a swear word in one of your talks, and I stopped teaching, because I felt so guilty and so ashamed that I did that. I just didn't want to be talked, I didn't want to be known that as that kind of guy, you know, that was selfish or that was swearing. I just thought, man, that's humiliating. I don't want to be that kind of guy. I just want to tell you this. The devil wins in that situation. He wins. He wins because he sidelined me. God doesn't need me not to swear. God does not need me to be worried about my pride when I'm speaking. He doesn't care. He can work around that. He doesn't care. He's like, Bill, you're a bumbling idiot most of the time. I got it. Whatever I need to hear, they'll hear. Whatever you do to make a mistake, stop worrying about it. Get in the game. I need you in the game. And you sitting on the sidelines worried about how you look and what your appearance is is not helping anybody. That's no good, right? And if you're the Christian that's walking around being the guy criticizing everybody, stop it. Knock it off. You're not helping anybody being Mr. Holier than that because you got your mess too. It doesn't help, you guys. We need to stop being that way. Guilt and shame takes us out of the game. And we need to be in the game. There's bigger battles to fight. We have a much bigger enemy than us. And we need to be fighting that enemy, and that's what he's talking about. So you got to identify something that you're feeling shame and guilt over that's keeping you out of the game. What is it? you got to identify that, and you need to tell somebody in this group or in your home, I'm feeling guilty and ashamed about this, because I'm telling you that this is keeping you out of God's work. It will stop you in a heartbeat, and it does stop you. What is it that you're ashamed of and feeling guilty that's keeping you out? Last. 27 through 28, Paul challenges people to stand in unity. There's a lot of infighting going on. These people are all bickering and going after each other, and they're really not doing well. These guys are not doing well. Mm. And Paul's telling them to stand unified. Stay, 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 stay unified. It's what he wants them to do, guys. He wants them to be connected, so they have to be that way. And so the question you got to ask yourself is, what's the bigger battle that I should be fighting instead of the petty thing that I'm arguing with? This is what happens to guys. They get into church, and they get hung up over all these petty things, and they forget there's bigger battles. There's bigger battles. Guys, there's men dying of suicide. You saw it on the slides. Thousands of men. 77% of the suicides are men. 90% of the guys going to jail are men. Right? I mean, we're dying at records levels, and we're over here arguing over the carpet at the church, or whether we're going to have a retreat or a bonfire. Are you kidding me? you got to be kidding. There are bigger battles to fight. We should not be fighting over that. We should be fighting over the guys that are dying and how we're going to reach them. God's saying, get to a bigger cause. You're built for a bigger cause. 
That's what you're built for. Men are built to fight big battles, not little battles. That's what he wants us in, guys. He's calling you to that. If you find yourself in an argument in the church over something petty, that's because you're not working on something big. He's called you to big, you guys. I'm telling you he has. And every man in this room feels it. You know it. It's in you. You've been called to that. That's why men go fight wars. Because they die for things. They die for their doggone country. And we have things to die for, guys. Stop working on petty stuff. Start looking for big things to work on. You gotta go identify the last place. Go identify something that's significant that's going on. Seriously, sit and write lists. What's breaking my heart when I look at America? Write them down. Just keep writing. What's breaking my heart when I look at America? Write them down, write them down, write them down. Keep writing until you can't write anymore. And then you spend an hour, lay that thing on the floor and pray, God, show me where you want me. Pray that, beg him to show you. Think about it. Carry that list with you everywhere until God breaks your heart and shows you, this is where I want you. This is the battle you need to be in. And then move there. Google, get in, start doing as little as you have to, but get in the game. Stop playing on the sideline. I'm gonna show you one video here of a guy that's in the game. His name's Gary Ringer. I wanna end on this. This guy was amazing. In my early 30s, I started a business called Ringer Foods. And I remember telling my wife, Marla, I wanted to get rich, retire at 40, and live the American dream. But my plans weren't working. We were losing money, and I was realizing how little I knew about the food business. About that time, I got into a pattern where night after night, around 1 or 2 a.m., I'd wake up and I'd lie there in bed thinking all kinds of dark thoughts like, God forbid, are we going to kill someone with bacteria-tainted food? And then I became sleep-deprived, and desperation and depression hit. And at that point, I didn't care about the American dream. I just wanted to quit. But God didn't give me a piece about quitting. Instead, he convicted me to think about business differently. And that led to a written and signed contract with him. The contract stated that if Ringer Fruits ever became successful and we sold it, we would pay ourselves the original amount that we invested plus interest. And anything over and above that would be used for ministry. That broken beginning was life-changing for me and my family. It led to a closer relationship with Jesus. And ultimately, when we sold Ringer Foods in 2002, it led to lifestyle programs. Today, I am so thankful God broke me and changed my direction and led me to His work advocating for orphans. His plan was so much better than my American dream. Jesus said, the fields are white with harvest and that we should pray for more workers. So at Lifesong, we were praying for more workers, some to adopt, some to care, and some to give. Is God calling you to be a worker in this field? Is he calling you to make a difference in the life of an orphan? I know Gary, we're good friends. And, uh... I've been to Zambia, I've been in one of his orphanages, he does amazing work, you guys, but his story's my story, my story's his story. I woke up last year feeling exactly the way Gary is. Is my food business gonna go down the hill? Am I gonna run out of money? Am I gonna kill people? Are my employees gonna get it? What's gonna happen to me, God? Waking up exactly like him at 1.30 in the morning, worried, afraid, nervous, depressed, and God said, no, Bill, come on, man. You've been serving men your whole life. Just get more serious about it now. 
heart of a man was started because I felt God say, it's time. Guys, as, as sold out as Gary is for orphanages is how sold I am out for you. I just want to give you that. It's my promise to you. I love men as much as that man loved orphans. I love working with you guys, and I'll give you everything I have because I know that's where God's called me. So where's he called you? Where are you going to go? What are you going to work on? What's going to be important to you? What's your passion? We need leaders. We need men, you guys. Join us. Well, we just wrapped up night number two. Thank you, Bill, so much for speaking tonight. We talked about Philippians 1, and we wanted to create some space here at the end for you to share some extra thoughts on any passages that you thought needed clarification or places where you wanted to add some other information. So thanks for being here with me. Thank you, Taylor. It's uh, awesome to study this book of Philippians, this letter uh, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi to see the practical advice he gives, and especially for us men to, to look at Paul's life and see the challenges he puts before us to be uh, just bigger than we are right now in terms of our service to him and our love and commitment to Jesus Christ, you know. So I love this letter for that purpose. I think I've got two thoughts. One's going to be in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, where Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And that uh, that verse really stuck out to me because I'm I like to study the scripture. I love hearing good sermons, and our pastors do such a wonderful job of teaching that. Uh, but I found myself often wondering, what does he mean by uh, my love uh, abounding in knowledge and discernment? And I, I find my own heart drawn to sort of a head knowledge where I want to learn more and be smarter and have more theology and get more information and read more commentaries and and just get more depth of knowledge in that category. And I think there's another part that Paul may be talking about, and it's the heart side of what he's pointing to there. It's it's good to know a lot of things, but oftentimes that doesn't move my heart. And so I really I really dwelt on the emotional aspect of what it means to to have my heart grow in knowledge. There's an emotional element there. There's a piece to our our heart that feels and it's not just thinking it's feeling and god made us rational and he made us emotional and when we let ourselves experience the depths of our emotions and at the same time the depths of our rational thinking equally we're different people because of that we 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 are who he made us to be then we live out our life uh, more abundantly and we're much more loving and connected to the people and to God. He wants us to experience him in a very emotional way and each other in an emotional way. And I think we just set the emotional side apart, especially as men. We love that rational male instead of the emotional male. In fact, we're uncomfortable with that, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, men don't sit well in the emotional space. We don't play well. We don't know the lingo. We don't know the language. Very difficult. Very difficult. And I suspect Paul sitting in chains and uh, not having an opportunity to, to relate and love and be connected to the men and women he'd served with, he was lonely. I'll bet he was feeling the depths of loneliness and fear that he had never felt before and was starving some for emotional, relational connection and was trying to point to these people, like, feel the emotion that you are, you know, let yourself experience that. And so my challenge us as men is to say, hey, how do I start getting connected to my heart in a very emotional, relational way. 
And uh, what I've found is that is best done by working with men that understand language of the heart. Mm. What are the emotions of the heart? What are those? How do they look? What's the words? What's the vocabulary? And then how do I how do I connect? How do I have a relational connection with another male uh, or another female? You know, where I'm really connecting at an emotional level, not just at an intellectual level. And I found that when I do that, it opens up a world to me that I've never seen. You know, and that's what we saw in Proverbs 20, where God said, you know, the 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 depth and meaning of and the and the purpose of a man's life is deep water in his heart and the wise person the wise person draws that out and i thought wow isn't that cool to think about and that's what heart of a man is founded on is that concept that we're going to find knowledge and emotional connection deep in our hearts mm. yeah and you touched on that a bit in your lesson as well uh and and you pinpointed that our natural inclination as men is to fix things. It's to it's to hear another man's brokenness when he does get vulnerable, and in that moment we tend to fix him. We take an intellectual approach to an emotional issue, and your point is we shouldn't do that. When it's an emotional brokenness, we need to fix that with a proper emotional response. Yeah, that's it, man. You nailed it. That's where we're effective. That's where the relational connection really happens. The fixing of another person kills the connection, and the empathy and the and the I'm in it with you moment draws two people together. I mean, that's where the magic happens. And when you feel connected to another person that way, there's something magic that happens because you feel connected to God. And it's just hard to explain. And uh, until you've experienced it, you just can't describe it. It's just, it, it's just indescribable. Connection, real connection to a human heart creates real connection to God's heart. That's powerful insight. Thank you so much for sharing that. And then I know you also had one other point that you wanted to touch on uh, towards the end of the lesson. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in uh, verse, it started in verse 27. He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear, hear of what that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Man, I just think that is a powerful statement of Paul saying, stand together, man. Like you gotta be fighting for the gospel together. You can't do it apart. You can't do it alone. And when you find yourself with your Christian brothers and sisters at odds with each other, something's wrong there. That's bad. That is not the place we need to be. It destroys our ability to fight against the enemy. It destroys our ability to to solve the bigger problems of life. We're not fighting the real battles. We're fighting petty battles that the devil has put in as straw men so that we can be deceived and pulled off task. And man, that is just a red flag. If you're in the middle of that kind of disunity with another Christian or brother or sister, you gotta get out of that because that's right where the devil put you, not God, and you've gotta solve that and then get about uh, fighting the real battles. And I think, honestly, that symptom really indicates I'm probably not involved in something meaningful. I'm probably just trying to do something to avoid meaningful work because I don't want to put in the time or I don't want to make the commitment or I feel overwhelmed or I'm frightened. And that's wrong. Man, we got to be in things that are big issues in life. We got to solve poverty. We got to work on 
um, suicide. We got to work on fatherless homes. We got to work on men that have no friends. Those are the issues God calls us to work on, not arguing over petty disagreements with our brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. So the clarification there from your lesson is where you mentioned that we need to be working on big things. It doesn't necessarily mean you need to be leading big things, building big things. You need to go out and be big, be all about the big. It means you need to care about the things that God cares about. Man, that's it. You nailed it. In fact, that idea of making something big is probably maybe our own ego. That may not be what God calls us to. Big problems doesn't mean we have to make the, a big ministry out of it. It means we've been gifted to serve somehow in the way, in the place God's called us to work. That may be a small task but it's a big problem we're working on. We may have a a calling to do just some small role in that task. Doesn't mean we're called to make something big. That's not what it means, but there's big problems that we can work on with a bunch of other believers that has a big impact, but we're only doing our part, the part we've been called to do. And it's important to distinguish between the the desire to make something big and the desire to work on something big. Those are completely different desires. One can be selfish, one can have deep spiritual impact. Yeah, yeah, it's a great differentiation. I know, especially for me, and I know there's guys who feel it when they hear that, it's scary. It's kind of terrifying to think, I need to do something big. If I don't do something big, somehow I'm dropping the ball. But that's that's not the case. That's not the message. It's there are issues that God thinks are valuable for you to spend your time working on in a small way. Yeah. Yeah. When God called Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, he he gave Nehemiah the vision of calling each family to fix just their part of the wall. Just those bricks in their section. That's it. Not the whole wall. Not the whole thing. One little section, each family. That's all they were asked to do. And I think that's what it is. But when they got done, that wall was significant. It was a big project, each person handling a small part. And I think that's a great way to distinguish it. Wow. Wow. What a cool example, too. Uh, Unity, that's what God calls us to. It's in that unity that we can achieve big, but we all have to do our piece. Got to do our piece. So yeah. So if you're feeling like you're caught up in a petty battle, Maybe you're in the wrong battle. Go get involved in something that God's really working on that's different than maybe what you're on and jump into something in a way that you can contribute. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. That is the end of week two for Heart of a Man. Um, Come back and join us for week three. We'll be back next week with our next podcast. And uh, we look forward to, to sharing more with you guys then. Thanks. Thanks.